I'm Cricket, by the way. I'm one of the many volunteers here at Harbor. And today I'm going to be walking you through a scripture passage like we have been for the last few months in Matthew, showing what disciples of Christ are like, what they do, what they don't do, how it is. And the passage we're looking at today is from Matthew 16, but first, I want to look at what happens before that, because that tells us a lot about their mood, where they are, what's happening, and how they end up where they end up, especially in this passage that's important. So in chapter 15, Jesus has gone up to this really remote place on a mountainside, and he went with his disciples, and then thousands of people followed him. So it's not, not alone. He thought he was going to be, but suddenly he's not. And then you get these thousands of people bringing others with them who need healing. You have the lame, you have the mute, you have the, the broken, the just blind, crippled, everything. They're bringing them up, they're carrying them up, they're helping them to make their way along. And for three days, Jesus works with healing them. And his disciples are with him, helping to guide people and helping them along. So they're really exhausted. And at the end of three days, most of the food supply is gone. So they're starting to get hungry, but it's remote. It's the end of the day. They don't want to send them away and have them faint on the way home. That would be really bad. So Jesus talks to the disciples and they say, well, We've got seven loaves and a couple of fish. So Jesus had all these thousands of people sit down, and then he thanked God, broke the bread, and then had the disciples hand out the bread and the fish to these at least 4,000 people that we know of. The disciples then clean up, get everything taken care of, and they get baskets full of leftovers. And the people had had more than enough. It's very clear. It says they were satisfied. They had way more than enough to eat. And you've got all of these leftovers. And then they send the, the crowds home. So the end of three days, tired, exhausted, wiped out, Jesus takes his disciples and they head somewhere else. And they go just not too far. And they're swarmed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are out to get Jesus. They're attacking him. They're trying to catch him so they can find a way to get him killed. That's their their thing. They don't like him. So they go from that to getting attacked, and then it's like, come on, give me a break. And then Jesus takes them and says, you know, we're going to northern Israel. It's 25 miles. It's like an eight-hour walk. So the disciples spend this time, this eight hours or so, alone on the road with Jesus, getting that time with him, with each other, and just processing and thinking about and considering what they've seen, what they've heard, how everything has gone. And that's what a disciple of Jesus does. They spend time alone with him talking with him, talking about the word, talking about, well, what does the scripture say about the Messiah? What does it say about God? What does it say about how we live? That's what they did. Time to just be with God. Not doing stuff like they have been. Not trying to serve him or trying to gain Jesus points, as my Bible study calls it. (laughs) Got to do good work so we can get Jesus points. We say it as a joke because we know that's not how it works. (laughs) 
but it's just being with him. Not doing, but being. And that's one of the things that disciples of Jesus do. They spend time alone with him. And they get refreshed. They get refilled. They get their souls filled up again by being with him. And it reminds us of a passage earlier in Matthew, in chapter 11, 28, where he talked about if you're weary, heavy laden, your burdens are too much, come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what the disciples are doing. They're getting this time a rest for their souls. And there are lots of ways to be with Jesus. As Kate said earlier about worship is her thing. And for a lot of people, that's what it is. Letting the, the song just wash over and through you. You get refilled. You get refreshed. Everything that's just pressed down on you and made you drained, that can help them feel filled up and close to Jesus again. And the words can give you his word because so many of the Christian songs are based on scripture. And that's what we need, getting that into us. You know, other people do it by playing the piano or, if you're me, walking. When I'm walking the dog, I talk to God. And it's really cool now that masks are okay because they can't see my lips working and thinking, oh, she's a nutcase. (laughs) She's talking to herself. Stay away from that lady. And I do it while unloading the dishwasher, while doing the laundry. It's, you know, it makes it a whole lot more fun than just, ugh, i got to put the laundry in again. Ooh, I've got to empty the dishwasher again. It gives me something to think about and talk to God about, and it gets the focus off of the drudgery. And it makes it this conversation with Jesus and I. It's kind of cool. And there's so many ways to do that. And Each of us may have something different, may have some other way of doing it, but things that you find yourself like some people sculpt, some paint, some craft with paper. They do all kinds of things to fill their souls back up by being with Jesus while doing something he has blessed them with and given them. Things that draw us together, draw us closer to him, spending time in his word and thinking about his word. So that's the first thing we see in these, this scripture is spending that time alone with Jesus. Then they arrive at their destination. And it states in Matthew 16, Now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or you know one of the other prophets. So Jesus took them to this place in northern Israel, Caesarea Philippi. It was a very fertile area because there was a a bluff there, this big bluff with a huge cave and deep spring that fills up and it helps with the, what is that river? The Jordan River, that's what it is, duh. So it fills the Jordan River. It's the biggest spring that fills the Jordan River. And we, and so there are groves of trees, there are grassy fields, and this leads to a variety of gods, false gods, being worshipped because a lot of people would think that this is a blessed area, so this is where we'll worship our various gods. 
And we have a painting that someone did of what the bluff may have looked like at that time, back then. And archaeologists have uncovered that there were somewhere around 14 temples to false gods in this place during Jesus' time. And you notice the niches? I don't think you can see it. You can't see them very well on this one. We'll see them on the next one when we get there. But there are these, like, window things, but they're filled in. So they're windowless windows. And that's where they put statues of their various gods. And they were worshipped there. Even today, you can still see these niches and, and where the cave is. Yeah, see the, the niche right there to the right of that first tree? So they had these little archway, little shelves there that that's where their statues were put, that they worshipped. So this is a, an area where it's not many Jews. So it's mostly a pagan area. And these false gods are being worshipped all over this place where they are. And you think, why? Why would Jesus take them to this place where it's covered with false gods? People are worshipping these false gods all over the place, this melting pot of false gods. And they ranged from the ancient Baals that for centuries had tripped up the Israelites to one of the modern gods at that time would have been the Greek god Pan. And it makes you wonder, what is Jesus thinking? Why do they tell us that they went to Caesarea Philippi? And all you know about this place is there's a lot of gods there and a spring that feeds the Jordan River. Why? Well, you think about what they just witnessed. They had just seen Jesus healing. They had seen him feeding people, doing things that mankind can't do. It's not possible. And then they get attacked by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So they've been around all of these people Now they've had this time to be alone with Jesus. So they got their rest. He's taking them somewhere where they're not going to get involved with someone else on the road there. Time to be alone. Crowds weren't likely to follow him either. Those people who had been healed and had heard him were not going to be following up there. And it's a show you a contrast. He wants them to really focus on what's happening here. You just saw me healing people, feeding people, doing things that God has given me to do that humankind cannot do. And then he brings them to this place where there are all these false gods, these little statues sitting in their little little niches. They can't move. They can't talk. They can't teach. They can't heal. They can't feed people. So it's showing this huge contrast between how other people worship and what they worship versus who he is and what God has shown him to be. And that's why he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Son of Man is a phrase that's used a few places in the Old Testament and some in the New. And the Jewish people, his disciples would have known he was talking about the Messiah. Who do people say the Messiah is? He's basically asking, who do the people say that I am? After those three days, you've been among the people. You've been with those that were healed. You've been with those who were fed. 
Who are they saying that I am? And they answer him. A whole bunch of them, different ones, answer him and say, you know, a bunch of different prophets. And the prophets that they mention are ones that are God's people. They spoke God's word. They led God's people correctly. So it was a compliment. They were saying good things about Jesus. And some of them, some of those prophets even did miracles. Not as many, but some actually did bring people back to life. They would have the river part and walk through on dry land. And Elijah even had his waterlogged, soaked offering burned up by the fire of heaven before all 400 and some priests of Baal to show that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God. The Baal God, he was out doing something else. Who knows what he wasn't answering. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God. All the others are false. And then, you know, they tell him all of this and Jesus doesn't say a thing about it. He doesn't comment on it. He just said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus asked them as a group, who do people say I am? And then who do you say I am? And he asked this of everyone And as disciples, we will say, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And that's what Peter said. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. This is a foundational question that we need to answer because it helps us to have that firm foundation to know who Jesus is. If we're not sure who he is, do some more digging. Do some more studying. Ask more questions. Find out so that that is a firm rock that you can stand on and nothing can shake you from it. There'll be times of doubt. There'll be times of questions. That's okay. It's all right because we'll have that firm foundation and we can go to him and talk to him about it. We don't have to just wonder. We have the Bible we can go to that and say, hey, what do you say? How do we prove that you are who you are? And there are books that are written on this, like More Than a Carpenter, and another one that comes after More Than a Carpenter, and all kinds of apologetics that are out there. Just Google for books on Jesus as a Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God. You'll find all kinds of things out there that can help you to understand and to find that firm foundation. They had watched, they were eyewitnesses to what was happening. They had studied the Old Testament scriptures, they knew them, so they knew what the prophecies were. They knew that Jesus was fulfilling them one after another, after another, after another, after another. That he was fulfillment of those prophecies. They had a firm foundation. Disciples of God, search for that truth and find that firm foundation. And then we start to live for him. 
We start to serve him and follow his ways. And one of the really cool things we see in this passage is that Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon Peter, because God revealed this truth to you. No person did. God did. Peter didn't believe God because, you know, his brother said he should. Or some other guy that he trusted did. We don't believe that Jesus is God because of Katie or because of some other pastor we know. We believe it because we study it. We know it. We have fought for that hard truth that he is who he said he is in the word. That we know that we know because he fulfilled all of those scriptures. And the reason that we can then not be knocked off of our firm foundation is because God is the one who reveals it to us. Not some other person that fails or falls, but God himself is the one who reveals it. And for Peter, that was vital for his walk with God because, you know, because of that foundation, he could withstand all that life threw at him, all that the enemy of our souls threw at him. And he could still stand. Sometimes he'd fall. We see him right after this, falling flat on his face. But he gets up again, and that's what we do. And God is right there to pick us up, to hold us, to help us to be with him and know that he loves us. Even when we fail, he loves us. We each need this kind of foundation and this truth as a disciple of Jesus. Disciples seek the truth. They seek what God has said in his word. And we find Jesus continuing his response to Peter's confession, and it has some odd things in it that we will address because there's some weird stuff in here. It's in verses 18 to 19. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The rock, the foundation of the church, and church in the Greek is just the word for gathering, and it was a gathering for anyone who had a group of people get together. It only became to mean the church as time passed. So it's just, we're looking at the foundation of the church. It's a fact that Jesus is the son of the living God. And his next phrasing fits with what I've already said, that he says, I, Jesus says, I will build my church. Not Peter, not John, not James. Jesus is the one that builds the church. And he built it on that fact that he is the son of the living God. So as disciples, we spend time alone with him. We spend time in his word. We find ways to get recharged and refreshed. And we get that foundation of the truth from his word. And it's not, the, the word really is challenging because you have to let go and surrender what you think it might say, what you might want it to say, and let it say what it says. And that 
is difficult. But it's what we do as disciples. Because we do according to what God says, according, according to what he does. Because as disciples, we don't just go our own way. We line up our way and move over to what God's is. We align our will to his will. Because it's about him, not about us. And we won't be perfect. But remember, he's always there. Every time we fail, he's always there to pick us up, to love us, and to help us get on our feet again. Every single time. And our verses do have these, as I said earlier, a couple of odd things. You know, you've got this whole keys to the kingdom of heaven thing. And, you know, what does that mean? I'll tell you one thing. It does not mean that Peter is at the pearly gates deciding who's in and who's out. That's not what it means. Don't have to have your password and your email. Nope. (laughs) But the key is actually connected in the phrase with these other odd things of binding and loosing, which was a Jewish technical term and a legal term. And it meant declaring what is forbidden and what is permitted. So you can see how all of this is just fitting together, doing what God wants, not what we want, having things put together. And it's, this phrase is used a few places in the Old Testament where there was no precedent for some of the things that happened. One of the, <laughs> it's a really, just bear with me on this one. I read it and was like, oh, ugh. I have a dog. So this is just, it's, they had to decide if a dog died inside the house whether the house was clean or unclean in the Jewish culture, because there was no precedent set for it. I mean, there's even goes so far as if the dog dies in the yard versus this side of the yard versus, and with its nose facing this way or that way. It's like, really? But that's what they had to do. They had to make these decisions. And that's what it's talking about, is the leaders of the church had to make decisions for what was allowed and what was forbidden in particular situations. And that's why you get this really kind of, the NASB sometimes is wooden and tortured, but it gives you the the Greek tense in the right way. So you have that, whatever you bind or loose will have been bound or loosed. And you're reading that going, huh? This is really tortured. But when you think about it in the sense of lining up our will with God's, What they're doing is these leaders are lining up what things are happening with what God wants in these unprecedented things. How do we get our wills and make sure we're right with what God wants? That's what it's all about. The binding and loosing is not about spiritual warfare. There's no mention of that. Not about casting out demons. That's other places. That is not one you can use for this one. It's about, once again, lining up our lives and our decisions with what God says, what he wants, what he does. And we see this throughout the New Testament because the church is being born out of all these different things. They're coming from Judaism, allowing Gentiles into the church, horror of horrors, and things are all in flux. What are they going to do? They have years where they've been at the temple 
and at the synagogue, and now it's this new thing. They have to decide what is God permitting and what is he forbidding for this new church. And it's not Peter all by himself. You do not see Peter unilaterally deciding. What you see is him coming together. Sometimes God will give him a vision or a thought, and he will bring it to sometimes the leaders at the Jerusalem, the others who are helping run the church. Other times they'll get together in other groups of leaders and people who are mature believers, and they come to a decision, a consensus together. It's not Peter unilaterally doing it. You do not see that in Scripture. And some of the things they had to deal with were, oh, they actually changed the day of worship. As Jews, they worshiped on Saturday, the Shabbat. They decided to change it to Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And God gave Peter in Acts 10 a vision. And he did it three times, saying, you know, here, eat this food. And Peter's like, no, that's unclean food. I'm not eating that stuff. But God told him that whatever he offered is not unclean. And unknowns to Peter, there's these Gentiles who have come. God has given one of them a vision to go to where Peter is and tells them exactly where to find Peter. And they're outside the door wanting to talk to Peter to have him come and talk to them about Jesus. Totally crazy stuff for a Jewish man to go to a Gentile house, talk to them, and eat with them. That was not done. But Peter had this vision, and then the Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles, just like it did on the Jews at Pentecost, on Peter and the rest of the the apostles. The Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, and they're praising God for what he's done. So Peter takes this his vision and everything that happened and a couple of other people that were there, and they go to the council, the people who are leading the church, and say, hey, what are we going to do about this? God let them have the same experience we did. Okay, so they decide to let them be part of the church. And it goes even further than that. Then it's, well, do they have to do all of the things that we did to be Jews? So they had all of these huge decisions to make, and they prayed, and they sought God, and they sought his word, and came to an agreement of what they did and didn't have to do. That's lining their will up with God's, because that's so important. And even the things like no longer need to sacrifice animals. Yay, I'm all for that. But that's all of these decisions when the church was in flux, What do they need to do? How do we change things? How do we choose leaders since, you know, it used to be that all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Now what do we do? And they spent time praying and looking and chasing after God. What do you want? How do we do this? And came up with some basic guidelines for this is how we're going to choose leaders. Because there was so much flux during this time. So many changes, so many things that they didn't have a precedent for. They didn't know where they were going. They had to seek God. 
They even needed the most basic guidelines of what are the basics of the faith that we're going to teach people. Basic stuff that we just take for granted because we're so used to it. They had to seek God and search for what do you want? How do we do this? How do we line up our wills with what you want for this God? Not what we want, but what you want. We have to move. We have to change. And that's a huge part of what we as disciples do. We change our path to walk with God. We change the ways we want to go as we seek him, as he shows us, I don't want you going this way. I want you to turn this way. You go his ways. We make sure that our foundation is built strong and secure from his word, knowing who Jesus really is, not because someone else has told us, not because of what we've been taught, but by what scripture tells us, what we ourselves find as God's word. We seek that truth, and we spend time alone with Jesus and with others. Because sometimes, I know there are introverts, but there's also extroverts, and sometimes you don't do as well just being by yourself. You need other people to talk to, to kick around the things that are going on in your life and what you see in scripture. That's why these journey groups are important. You can kick it around and say, no, 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 that scripture, that's, you can't use that scripture for that. Mm-mm. But you'd say it more gently than that. I tend to be a little black and white sometimes. As some of you know, I heard that laughter. <laughs> and it's just, this, these are the things that we find in this scripture. That's some of the things that disciples of Jesus do. And I challenge you to look at that this week. Is there anything I need to move my will on to be more like him? Is there, do I need a better foundation? Do I need to be in the word more? Do I need to be searching for what scriptures say that Jesus is the the Messiah? What do I need to do? Do I need to spend more time alone with him? Those are some things we can look at this week. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are human and we are frail and we fall in our faces all the time. And we're so thankful that you give us examples of people in your word that have done the same thing, that have fallen on their faces time and time again. And yet there you are, letting them be your servants, letting them lead the church, letting them decide with seeking you what is and isn't going to be, what's permitted and what's forbidden. You are just so loving and so amazing. Help us to spend time with you this week, to seek you and to serve you. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done for us. Amen.